Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. Looks like I missed one last week, so we're going to start out with a post that's over a week old. Totally my fault, my bad, I have no idea how I missed it, but let's jump right into it. Retro Gamer Store has just opened pre-orders, well, opened them about a week ago, but they're still open, on something called the G-Pi-Mate Plus, which is meant to replace the original Raspberry Pi Zero that was in the RetroFlag G-Pi case. So to kind of give a big overview, the RetroFlag G-Pi case uh, looks like a DMG Game Boy, but with extra buttons and seems to be a case completely custom designed around the Raspberry Pi Zero, so you could build your own emulation box. Um, and honestly, I, I always thought these looked really cool. If you're in the mood for a fun project and you like portable emulation systems, this certainly seems like something worth at least looking into. However, with the release of the Raspberry Pi's Compute Module 4, um, the original Raspberry Pi Zero that's in there, um, it's, I guess kind of feeling a little outdated because it doesn't have as much memory or speed as the newer one. So the device designed by Retro Gamer Store is well, uh, it fits in that cartridge slot area that allows you to interface the compute module for light and specifically pick up the light edition. So essentially if you already own one of these things you get to upgrade yours for the just about $50 they're charging plus shipping. Um, the only thing to remember is that they strongly recommend you use the compute module for light. Uh, and that's pretty much it. So um, I don't know too many more details about either this project or really the retro flag other than it looks neat. So uh, if you are interested in making your own portable emulation box console, I would really look into this. Um, and I've always been a fan of the Raspberry Pi stuff. You know, the, any creator in the retro world has seen the, the comment trolls that say, just get a Raspberry Pi. And while in the context of restoring original hardware, it's maddening to see stuff like that. The truth is, it's a, a really fun way to emulate arcade uh, arcade machines as well as other consoles, and I would certainly love to play around with a portable one like this. I'm, I'm much more of a sit-down-on-a-couch-or-in-a-chair type of gamer than portable on the go, but it's still pretty neat, and it's something that I would certainly like to try out at some point. Vitor Vilela has just released an updated set of tools for SA1 Super Nintendo hacking, and included in that is a patch for Super Mario World. So to step back for a second, uh, ROM hacker Vitor Vilela about a year or so ago figured out how to patch Super Nintendo games to take advantage of the SA1 coprocessing chip, which is a chip like the Super FX and many of the others that a lot of cartridge-based systems use that allowed for more enhancements from the chip on the cartridge itself. So like the Super FX would allow for different uh, updated graphics, the SA1 definitely gives you a faster processor speed and you could offload a lot of the processing onto it. 
So what VTOR has done is been, created a set of tools that other ROM hackers can use to create these patches. And as part of this is an updated version of the Super Mario World ROM hack. And in this, it allows for things like reduced slowdown, more sprites on the screen, uh, which obviously is a good thing for any retro gamers that just want to get some more fluid performance out of it. But a funny side effect is it's actually made a bunch of levels much harder because some of the original limitations of the levels were that there wasn't enough memory for that many enemies to respawn. And now that a much faster processor has been integrated alongside of the Super Nintendo's main CPU, those limitations don't exist anymore. So it's kind of a neat thing. I'm wondering, uh, as somebody who loves Super Mario World, and I go back and replay it start to finish every couple of years, uh, I'm I'm wondering if I'm going to appreciate the extra difficulty on those few levels um, or not, or if I'm just going to get annoyed. I don't know. I would love to give it a try. I'm going to try to schedule some time to play this patch and and really spend some time with the levels at some point in the future. Um, These hacks can all be played on original hardware via the FX Pack or FX Pack Pro. They could be played on the Mister. Uh, and of course, through any kind of software emulation. And if you really want to be uh, crazy, you could take an original game that uses the SA1 chip and swap the ROM out for a ROM flashed with this patched version of Super Mario World. I don't know if I would go through the trouble for all of that other than just to say that you did it, uh, but it's certainly there as an option. So thanks to Vitor and all of the work that he does. Um, I was definitely a fan of his other patches, and I'm certainly interested to see where he can go from here. Um, while they certainly don't need it, I would like to see all of the tools and updates added used to create something crazy like maybe take A Link to the Past and Super Metroid, my two favorite games and some of the biggest on the platform, uh, integrate this chip into it along with the widescreen hacks to help for more performance to allow more sprites on the screen when the widescreen modes were uh, were working, um, and see what else you could do to tweak it. I don't really think either of those games... Uh, suffer from slowdown but when you start adding these other performance patches to it maybe that would throw something in the mix i don't know i I would just love to see this implemented into something that would make a huge splash and and really show off what a patch like this and what really the the retro gaming rom hacking community in general is capable of because when you take any of these patches one at a time they're still super impressive but just one awesome rom hack with everything integrated into it would be an awesome way to show uh, show off what the community is capable of so Maybe we'll see something like that in the future. And speaking of Super Nintendo ROM hacking, somebody really has gone above and beyond to do a tech demo that runs on real Super Nintendo hardware. So a developer took a stock original unmodified Super Nintendo, but modified the game cartridge to use an external FPGA as if it was an add-on chip, like the Super FX or the SA1. And using the processing power of this external FPGA was able to create a ray tracing demo that has some really impressive graphics that will run on original Super Nintendo consoles. Now, this is a proof of concept. Uh, One of the videos that uh, this developer posted showed exactly how this thing was wired in. So this is definitely not something that you'd be able to run yourself. This is really just proof that it could be done. But Often with demos like this, they're stepping stones to something else. So like on the FX Pack Pro, we're able to emulate other chips through the FPGA, like the SA1, FX, uh, Super FX, and the MSU1 Audio, which is an audio enhancement that the original Super Nintendo never had. 
I'm wondering if demos like this can be used to post somewhat similar or to create somewhat similar hacks that allow for video enhancements. Now, something like this with full ray tracing, I'm assuming there's no way that could be done on the current FPGA that's on the FX Pack Pro, but maybe something custom can be made and some slight graphic enhancements can be pulled off. Who knows? That is uh, way, way above my knowledge of any of this stuff. Um, but if you're looking for a really cool demo of something that probably nobody thought possible, check out the post and, uh, and the videos attached to them. I wrote this next post to address kind of a bigger picture issue with HDMI cables, and I really think it's possible that this problem could apply to anybody listening, maybe now or in the future. Uh, so I'll kind of just step back for a minute and give a, a bigger picture explanation of why I wrote this. Um, many people out there need very long runs of HDMI. I know through friends of mine, many people have projectors on their ceilings that they need to run uh, very carefully and discreetly run a cable around to so you don't see ugly cables everywhere. And that's often a very far distance from where they keep their consoles. I also have a bunch of friends that run game tournaments that need to run long HDMI from wherever the gaming stations are um, all the way past the players to where the main control station is. And there's a couple other use cases scenarios where basically you need a really long HDMI cable. Uh, for me personally, my TV and consoles are over there and I need to run the wire around the apartment to get to the main capture card here. Um, and it, even in the 50 foot run that I have, I have constant issues with it. So there's many reasons why you might need a long run of HDMI. Um, and I had assumed that all cables that are fiber or HDMI over fiber were zero lag, except I'd heard a lot of people in the past few months said that they'd picked up some of those cables and they got probably around a frame, a little bit less the, uh, of a frame of lag, which isn't that big a deal, but something like this absolutely doesn't need to add any lag whatsoever. Um, there's also a lot of people out there who have tested HDMI range extenders and stuff like that, and same thing. Some add lag and some do not. So I wrote this post because the developer, Dasutin, uh, developer and streamer, um, had tested an HDMI fiber cable with a time sleuth and guaranteed that there was zero milliseconds of lag added to it. So I dropped that link in there as well as a link to the time sleuth for anybody who just needs a solution right now. But they're really expensive, and all of these cables are, actually. Um, this one was 185 The one that I saw with a friend of mine at a trade show that was also guaranteed zero lag and could go uh, even longer than this was like $350. Whereas using an HDMI repeater, it's very often, you know, you buy two 50-foot HDMI cables, one repeater in the middle, you know, it's 50 bucks total, if, if that. So this solution isn't for everybody. But it is a problem that many of us are going to run into. And especially as TVs get bigger and more people hang them on their walls and more people want cleaner setups, um, it's the need for just a single long cable is going to start to grow. So I just wanted to start the conversation of some HDMI uh, fiber cables add lag. They, they shouldn't. Um, and, you know, there could be a fluke. It could have been people had mistakes in testing, but the people I spoke to definitely double-checked. So at the very least, there's one or two models out there that do add lag. Um, and I hope that websites like rtings.com will start keeping data on this because while I have a use case of being able to test four or five of these, they could probably test every one of them pretty much. So hopefully bigger... Uh, 
bigger and more mainstream review places like that can get on board. But respectfully, a lot of times they don't know that they need to review these things until we ask them to. So, you know, if, uh, if you follow them on social media or anybody else that you know that tests a wide variety of stuff, definitely throw this in the, um, in the bin. Recommended Time Sleuth as well, uh, just so you get actual numbers, not any guesses or anything like that. There's a few other um, lag test solutions that are good as well, but the Time Sleuth is by far the most straightforward for your average nerd just because of all the different resolutions it supports. And then once it's programmed, it just works like a device. There's no messing with it. Um, but I do have a few others sitting here that I will test at some point in the next few months and do a video on that. Uh, but anyway, I, I just wanted to kind of get the word out there that if you have the money to spend and you need a really long HDMI cable, there are zero lag solutions out there that work up to 4K 60. Um, and I believe the cable that Dasutin tested was uh, could run in full uncompressed color in 1080p 60 uh, and could run up to 4K 120 at 10-bit color. So it seems like something that would be okay for, the, for most people um, at the moment. But, you know... I'll keep my eyes out for them, and then hopefully the community will as well, and maybe we could pinpoint a handful of these that are good for all of us. I recently saw a Famicom to NES cartridge converter that looked pretty neat, so I bought one for a review, and I did a written review of it, and I figure I'll just kind of go over the basics here. I didn't think it really necessitated a full, you know, big production video review, but it's a cartridge converter that's a little fancier than a lot of the other ones I've owned. Um... It actually looks like an NES cartridge, and your Famicom cart slides into it, and now the label is facing the correct direction, which is nice because it just gives it the normal feel like everything's going into your NES properly. And speaking of that, um, the front of this is actually tapered, so the Famicom carts can only go in one way, which is great because I've seen lots of these converters that have no tapering. There, you know, there, and there's no directional arrow that shows which way is up for the Famicom cart. So it's great that you don't even need to worry about that with this. It either goes in or it doesn't. Um, also, it'll fit all original Famicom cartridge shells, which also includes the original EverDrive N8 Famicom version, but it's not big enough to fit any of the larger carts like the Konami games that use this, as well as uh, things like the EverDrive N8 Pro, the later version of the EverDrive. Um, but overall, it just kind of works fine. Um, as far as on the inside goes, it looks like there's beveled edges on it, which is great because that won't beat up your cartridge connector. Uh, I don't know if it's hard gold. It could be a different finish, but in my opinion, that's that's way less important because that would only affect the length of the you know the lifespan of the converter itself. That doesn't affect your games, your equipment, and it'll probably last a long time anyway. So the only issue I had with it was that a couple of times I had to remove, like I'd power it on, you'd get the gibberish characters on the screen, power it off, take it out, reseed everything, and then it worked. Um, I didn't really put that in the review because every Famicom converter I've ever used did that once or twice. And in fact, every NES does that with, with regular cartridges now and then. So it wasn't a thing. It didn't stop me from playing. It didn't crash in the middle of a game. I didn't spend so much time with it, only a few hours, but, but it seems okay. And at $15, seems like a decent buy. The only problem I really had was that, just like every other one of these converters, Famicom Expansion Audio was not connected. Um, and in order to do so, you have to open it up. The plastic on the inside is definitely going to break. They're pretty flimsy. It went back together 
pretty solid though, so I'm not too worried about it. Um, but it's essentially just one wire connecting two points. Um, and unfortunately, I uh, I ended up doing the wrong pad, and then when I went to clean it up, I got solder over on one of the other pins. It's pretty embarrassing, actually. But I have a picture there that shows exactly what you need. It's just a small jumper wire between two pins. Um, not a really big deal at all. Uh, and then you just have to trim a bit of the final plastic so that the wire doesn't squish up against it. And even when you put it back together, um, it kind of only fits in one way, but there's a really easy way to do it. You you basically put it chip up in the front of the cart and put the back on top of it over it, and that's it. Um, I talked to Voltar for a little bit about my complaints about why companies don't do any of this. Um, and I never really understood why Nintendo never bothered connecting expansion audio for the front-loading NES, because not only would it not have cost them any money to just run an extra trace on the motherboard, but it cost companies a lot of money to have to redo any of those original Famicom games that had the extra sound channels in order to work on the console that doesn't support the extra sound chips. So I never understood that decision. Voltar did help me clarify a little bit on why there isn't a universal mod for this, and it's because a lot of times over the years, people have done the mod differently. So even if you've done it the quote-unquote right way, um, you don't really want to send or to manufacture and sell a cartridge converter that has a mod for that when maybe somebody did it a different method, uh, maybe you need to still jump two pins together, and there's always the possibility of uh, some audio buzz getting introduced on those lines. So I guess he kind of... Uh, he kind of clarified why and it made me think, okay, maybe it's okay that they don't include this, but I still would really like to see it. Maybe if there's even just a warning and a disclaimer, because it would be nice to be able to pick these up, do the very, very easy mod on the inside of your NES. It's one of these mods that almost anybody could do. All you need is a soldering iron and a tiny bit of patience. Um, but now it looks like if you want to add that to your front-loading NES, you got to do two mods, one to the console and one to the converter. So not that big a deal, pretty easy even for beginners. Uh, just I would love to see something that has the detail to the plastic itself like this with some kind of audio mod already in there so you don't have to do it. But who knows, maybe Voltar's right and there never will be a way to just do a universal version of this. Well, I said I wasn't going to talk too much about the Anti-Mini Noir, but there's been some work in the community that uh, revolved around it that is either a big help for people who already own one, or it's kind of a cool glimpse into what it is. So I guess I will talk shortly about them. Uh, first up, Firebrand X had released a video that goes through each of the cores and teaches you how to get the best settings and the best aspect ratio you can out of each. Um, I'm really not sure why it wasn't from the factory like this. Uh, and I remember when I had my original NT Mini, it was very frustrating that every time I did a firmware update, I had to go back and reset each of the settings for each of the cores. Uh, so if you're a perfectionist that really wants good performance and a good look out of each of your consoles, definitely check that video out and make sure to follow. Uh, also, uh, check out the follow-up as well, because I believe Firebrand X posted a note in there with a couple of corrections, but overall, it's still a great video for anybody that owns one and wants to tweak performance. And remember, this won't apply to the original NT Mini because it's going to be some different settings. So I believe he had a video out for the original Mini, so definitely check that one out if you're uh, if you picked up one of those used or if you still have yours. 
And the last thing about the Mini, My Life in Gaming just did an almost hour-long deep dive into the console that compares it to the original, compares it to the Mr., goes over MD Fourier analysis, and shows off all of the features of the updated NES core. Um, Overall, if you were wondering what the hype for the, the Noir was all about, this is the video to watch. And even if you already bought one, you might want to watch it just to see how it compares to the other solutions, or just you want an excuse to watch another very cool My Life in Gaming video. The console itself, uh, you know, I've always praised the performance and even the look of the analog consoles. Um, I think if you were looking to purchase a limited edition, you know, rare special thing to play your NES and Famicom carts and you didn't mind the price, then you got a really awesome item. I do think, though, that if you were looking for a way to play ROMs, um, and, you know, with the jailbreak and all the extra cores, I think the whole process of getting the NT Mini uh, jailbreaking, which is simple, but then putting all the ROMs on and then going through each individual core and tweaking each of the settings like the Firebrand X video shows. I think at the end of the day, if you were to just buy a mister, the setup would be almost identical. Um, you'd be supporting a community-focused project that's constantly getting updates, and it's going to be far cheaper as well for essentially the same thing overall. Um, and there's even some features in the mister that are, are will never be on this. So while I certainly don't think it's the amazing ROM machine that the original was for its time, you know, it definitely performs well. I just think that um, if your goal was ROMs, the money would have been spent better elsewhere. And also, if your goal is just to play NES and Famicom carts on a flat panel TV, check out the AVS. Uh, it's been slowly updated, but it was never a bad choice. Um, and it's the cost of like a third of this thing and allows zero lag FPGA 720p output of Famicom and NES cartridges. I do hope um, all of the cool features that were implemented in the Nest Core on this one eventually gets into a two hundred dollar, you know, plus twenty to ninety dollars shipping plastic version. Um, and I think even even with the AVS out there as an option, there's going to be people that think that's more than good enough for them. And there's going to be people that want the extra options of this, and it's good to have choices. I just wish that they had concentrated on the more affordable plastic version than the whole fiasco surrounding this one. Um, you know, I, I do, I can't talk about analog without talking about both sides. It just, it is what it is. You know, they make great products that I like very much. Um, you know, I like, I've been a fan of Kevin since the beginning, and I'm glad that he's got a team helping him now. But, I do think it's just super gross and shady that, as stated in the video, this isn't insider info or anything, that Analog gave them two free units to make a review video about a product nobody could buy. Like, if that's not scraping the bottom of the barrel elitist marketing tactics, I mean, they're, they've, their marketing has gotten tired for a while now, and it's just gone past the point of insulting and i don't put any blame whatsoever on my life in gaming for this this is the video that we wanted to see they would have done the exact same video with or without paying for the unit uh and you know more importantly than that they have to look at the big picture of things right we all want my life in gaming to get early samples of the pocket and especially the duo which as long as they actually make enough for people to buy i think that one's going to be incredible and if they were to say what you know brash me would have said which is like you know go take a hike or i'll i'll take a free unit but i'm not you know i'm not peddling your stuff that no one could buy or something wise assy like that i think it's better that they that they 
really just kind of kept everything smooth, did their video the same way they would have anyway, and didn't burn any bridges or, or potentially burn any bridges with the analog for turning down a review. So I don't blame them in the slightest. I just think it's yet an, uh, the end to a, a very strange and, and weird and kind of sleazy chapter. And hopefully analog at least takes a step back and looks at, at how other people are viewing them because they got a lot of people upset these last few times and their the products are too good to have such a negative light cast on them so hopefully we'll we'll see some some better customer focused thinking in the future from them I recently posted an interview with Lon Seidman, who's a tech reviewer and a retro gaming fan. I'd actually done a panel with him at Retro World Expo last year, talking about FPGA emulation and mostly about the Mister as well. And, uh, you know, we seem to get along pretty well, and I've been talking to him on and off since. And while he's not directly a retro gaming YouTuber, um, he's a well-respected tech reviewer and just a fun guy to talk to. So I was kind of hoping the interview would go over well and people would enjoy it. And people really seemed to which is always excellent to hear you know I, I really love doing the interviews and even though they're really more podcast freeform style than interviews uh, it's just one of my favorite things to do and I really love getting to know all of these other people so um, while it's not really retro gaming focused we do cover a bunch of topics and uh, if you're a content creator there's a some pretty cool info in there too that you might be interested in but overall i had a great time and as with all of these podcast or podcast interview things um they are available everywhere so as a video but as well as on every single podcast service so get it however is easiest for you direct download youtube apple uh you know apple podcast google play whatever whatever's the easiest way for you to watch or listen definitely is the best way to do it for you then the team behind the new Nintendo Game & Watch jailbreaks have posted a status update video that kind of brings everybody up to speed as to where the project's at. Um, and I'll start off by saying it's still kind of complicated. You do need a specific programmer. Um, you do need the ability to load up and configure software. So it's probably more along the lines of like a GBS control style hack at the moment. Um, I'm not really sure how that could be improved in the future. So it's not something anybody could just do. You do need some tech experience with it. But there's still a lot of really cool stuff that they've done. Uh, one of the things is created a 3D printed rear cover so that you could break out the programming port without cutting original plastic. You don't need to cut the plastic to program it, but you do need to then constantly update it. Um, there's also a way to replace one of the memory chips on it so it could hold more ROMs. Um, and there's even a loader so that you could uh, put a few different ROMs on there and select between your game. And they've even implemented interpolation, which is cool. So you could fill the screen without it having any shimmering. And there's also some future projects planned, which I'm more excited about. No offense, I, I, I think they've done an amazing job with this, but um, what's to come seems to be even cooler. One of the things is integrating a Wi-Fi module, which could potentially lead to uh, not needing to have a programmer every time you need to change anything. It could, once again, like the GBS control, just be something that possibly could be done over Wi-Fi. So it'd be one initial hack, and then you do your updates that way. 
But the way cooler and r- totally ridiculous thing that I would absolutely love to see is somebody started work on a full PCB replacement, so just a drop-in replacement board, that includes an FPGA that's just powerful enough to run an NES core, and then presumably at least a Game Boy co- core, probably a Game Boy Color as well, which I just think would be absolutely hilarious and awesome if you had a little Game & Watch that could play full FPGA re- creations of original nes game boy game boy color i just think that would be the coolest little thing um there's also software emulation working on it as well that uh, allows you to play the original game and watch games as well as a couple of other things on there so overall it's a pretty cool project and if you like tinkering and you don't mind a combination of both hardware and software modding definitely check it out um it's fairly inexpensive i believe the programmers themselves are like 25 and uh you could still get the game and watches for 50 so as far as investing in a retro gaming project goes, that's that's about as reasonable as you could imagine. Um, and I left links to people that have been uh, doing a great job keeping up documentation on the hardware and software setup. So if you think this is a project you want to tinker with, uh, definitely check this out. For me personally, since I'm not the biggest handheld gamer, I'm going to hold off until something crazy is done, like an, an FPGA replacement board for it or something. An unreleased tech demo for the Dreamcast was just found, and there's kind of an interesting story behind it. So a forum user on dreamcasttalk.com just found a Dreamcast dev kit and dumped the contents of the hard drive. They're still kind of going through that, and it seems to be mostly straightforward, but one of the things on there was a tech demo based on the TV show The Simpsons called Bug Squad. And it was a game developed by Scotland-based Red Lemon Studios, And the find was actually confirmed by a former employee there that said one of the coders on their team had created a cell shading engine that they nicknamed the Toon Render Engine. And the same employee had ties with Fox, the the company that owns the rights to The Simpsons, and reached out to them and said, hey, check out this tech demo. And while the game never really went anywhere and they were never actually commissioned to make the game, uh, it was kind of just their own, like, here's... You know, your perspective of the game is from a bug running around the Simpsons house. Here's a tech demo. What do you think? And it looked really impressive. Um, to be honest, I'm not really sure why they didn't make the game. There probably was just conflict to other stuff or something, but it did look like it could have been a very cool Dreamcast game. So if you're interested in a piece of history that never was, check out at least the video embedded in the post. And I believe you could download it for yourself if you want to try it. Genovi just posted a really awesome video called Did Piracy Kill the Dreamcast? And he really went into a detailed analytical overview of game sales versus console sales, what was going on with Sega's other divisions at that time, some of the internal decisions made, uh, and then kind of where their future was pointing towards. And after hearing that explanation, it's incredibly clear to me the answer to the question, did piracy kill the Dreamcast, as well as what may have. Um, I don't want to give away any spoilers. I, you know, I'm, I'm the type that'll like close my eyes at a movie theater, you know, remember movie theaters, uh, during the preview, so I don't, I don't spoil movies that I want to see, and it's the same thing with these videos. I really think it was very well done, and uh, I don't want to skip to the end on this one. I, I think that if you're interested in Sega history, video game history, or just the Dreamcast, this is probably a video you're going to want to check out. 
Well, that's it for this week. As always, thanks so much to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to everybody that supports on services like Patreon and Floatplane, because it's you that's keeping all of this going. The website, the articles, the podcast, all the behind-the-scenes research that I'm involved in, all of it would not happen without you. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>